Hey guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. Hi everyone, welcome to a live episode of Dubai Works Business Podcast. This week I'm joined by Will Hudson. Will is the CEO and founder of Team LMTD, a leading digital agency in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. He's been for, at the forefront of many big campaigns and digital innovations over the last eight years. He's also a mentor and was Arabian Business uh, Mentor of the Year in 2018. He's a board member and board advisor for a number of charitable initiatives and an all-round uh, good guy. So, uh, Will, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Richard. <laughs> good morning. How are you? you nice setup. You're working from home, obviously. Yep. Day, as of today, day 35, we, we pulled the trigger early on uh, isolation. And uh, yeah, doing okay. Getting a little uh, cabin fever, but we're doing okay. So getting straight into it, obviously work from home is part of the impact of coronavirus and COVID-19. Uh, how have yeah. you been prepared for that? Was it something that, that came as a shock to the system? I mean, obviously, I think uh, global pandemic fundamentally comes as a shock. Um, but in terms of your culture and how you operate and how you communicate, there are little things you can do to prepare and get lucky. We feel like we got uh, lucky in some of those ways and didn't get lucky in, in other ways. Um, our culture is very much about communication, getting together and solving problems for our clients. Um, that's kind of like our organizing idea. We feel like we want to work with smart people solve problems and for us the way we solve those problems is through social and digital media that's it um so a lot of that uh that that kind of unique identifier was, was taking place in person but about a year ago we started working from home uh the last thursday of every month just proactively uh we wanted to try it um we had read a few articles on continuity i had no idea this was coming um but on a monthly basis we were forcing our whole team to work remotely Mm. Um, and it kind of gave us a lot of insight and a lot of lessons on how to organize meetings, how to create accountability, how to tighten our process, how to you know, shorten that feedback loop so we get more concise decisions when we're remote. And I think because of that, we've been in a good, good spot. So, oh, so you actually changed a bit of the kind of reporting structures and a, a bit of how Absolutely. you work, a bit of the communication approaches. Yep, yep. It's definitely more of a show your work uh, type of scenario. So let's say if um, in an agencies, it's all about workflow and division of labor. So you've got a client here and you've got, you know, a person that's executing one piece of a solution here. You can have two, three, four, five layers between everybody. And by the way, on the client side, there might be two or three or four layers as well. Hmm. So one of the quick things we did was tighten up our feedback uh, loop. We definitely have used WhatsApp. We, we've used Slack. We've used kind of uh, very simple you know, cheap and easy uh, channels to be able to get concise, consistent, real-time feedback into the whole team. Um, and we also force the account team to say, hey, here's where we're at, here's what the update is to everybody involved in the process. And, you know, you, you mentioned continuity. I guess we all don't have big documents on business continuity <laughs> plans in place, and we all don't have pandemic insurance like maybe Wimbledon had out. But True. so how the Q1 2020, and we're now in Q2, uh, and you're at home f since March, the beginning of March. Uh, how has that impacted your business? And you know, what's the overall size of Team LMTD at the moment, and how has it impacted? 
Yeah, so we're at about 27, 28 people today. Um, and what I will say is we had some uh, new joiners a week or two before uh, we worked from home. And so that's been really tough on them. And I, you know, my heart goes out to them. They've only had a couple of weeks working with the team in person before shifting uh, to working from home and being remote. And they've done an incredible job, uh, all things considered. Mm. I'm really proud of them. Um, for us, I think some of the things that, that set us apart is we work in digital and social. So our business is fundamentally um, able to be done remote. Um, I think on the other side, um, we have had to have start conversations with clients that really want um, people in person, people to be embedded, people to be in front of the client kind of as that insurance policy for them uh, in terms of the work and the resource allocation. And so I think there's uh, there have been tough conversations, but I think they've gone well. Um, and it's mostly focused around trust. You know, Do you trust us to get this accomplished with the resources that we've allocated and with the brief you've given? And I think we've done well there. Um, in terms of plans, no, you know, we didn't have pandemic insurance. Um, and for us, this was not um, an absolute, uh, you know, disqualifier. At Wimbledon, it makes sense. If you cannot have the event, the value is the event. It's like, I don't know, 70, 80% of their, their revenue uh, outside of uh, the event. It's, it's just kind of a, an annual uh, country club, right? Yeah. Um, so for us, we really, yeah, exactly. So we, we really tried to focus in on where can we grow what are the value adds? Where are the opportunities? We knew coming into quarter two, it was going to be a very difficult and dynamic quarter anyway. I think having this rolled onto it um, has made it more challenging, but we'll see where it goes. Interesting. And just talk some of the solutions. We often hear about you know, the response campaign ideas that brands are coming up with. Uh, have you seen that trickle into effect or has, are a lot of things on hold marketing-wise? So, <clears throat> no, I mean, I would tell you uh, for some of our larger clients, uh, especially the government clients, it's business as usual, if not uh, a big up, uptick in tempo. So about a year ago, uh, just for context, um, we resigned our last uh, consumer-facing client. We, we have one other consumer-facing client, but 95% of our business is B2B healthcare and government. And so um, they're very anti-cyclical uh, businesses. Government continues as normal. B2B, actually a couple of our B2B clients are, are, are expanding. Um, and healthcare for obvious reasons is, is still uh, business as usual. I would not say healthcare is growing though. Uh, a lot of their resources are put uh, towards fighting COVID-19. So, you know, I think for us as a business, we really think that our focus has, has helped us um, we think that our clients have had a very straightforward message. We help this way. Um, it has not been about virtue signaling. It has not been about a grand gesture. Um, I'll, I, another example is uh, we have a client that's a port uh, and free zone operator, and they did a really interesting global call for all the ports uh, in, in, in the evening to, to lay on their horns as the ships were coming or, or setting off. Um, and that's kind of within their community uh, spread naturally and organically. And you have ports around the world now every evening uh, laying on their horn and recording that and challenging others for a Horns for Hope or Ports for People uh, initiative. So that's been really uplifting and great to see. Um, and obviously with the healthcare clients, um, they're on the front lines. Um, this is tremendous amount of pressure and strain. So a lot of what we've tried to do is, is almost more internal communications. Mm -hmm. How can we get the, the, the channels and the audiences to help uplift the workers on the front lines? 
Amazing. So in one way, you're positioned quite well for this type of work and what's needed right now. Um, looking on your website, you've got a host of household name brands there, such as Etihad, Adnock yep. Distribution, um, and then some <laughs> cool ones like X Dubai and Jetman and, and, and you know, even Kareem and, uh, and Etihad. Uh, so how does, um, you know, without going into too much detail about how a digital agency or creative agency works, but what does a a pivot or a, a positioning pivot in terms of uh, clients, like going, going to government clients and healthcare clients, what does that look like internally and then externally? Yeah, so I think there's two sides to it. I think the first side is uh, luck and timing. And when I came to the market, uh, when I first visited in 2011, um, I met in a week what ended up becoming you know, four or five of our first clients. So out of the 20 meetings, hmm. we ended up in that first year closing, you know, 18 or 20% of that pipeline, which is unheard of. That does not happen. Um, but we came in with a really dialed in message. Uh, we, we didn't overprice uh, ourselves. We priced ourselves pretty aggressively. Um, and then really it was about recruiting the right folks, uh, building the right culture and then delivering the product. And so for a lot of those initial clients, uh, like Etihad, uh, which we had from 2012 to uh, 2016, uh, that was really about kicking off uh, um, all of their social uh, uh, you know, channels and about growing them internationally and helping them open route launches. Um, when you have folks like X Dubai, you just get out of the way. They've got all of the firepower. Dubai Film is probably one of the most qualified um, you know, production houses in the world to shoot the type of work that they did. Right. And so our goal is just to try to help put the idea in a box and make sure people didn't steal the content and make sure they got credit for the views and we could retarget them efficiently. Mm. Um, you know, and other brands uh, like Kareem, it, it's really been driven along uh, the guidelines and, and the fundamentals of relationships. Um, we get to work on great campaigns with great leaders there and be a part of that team in one-off uh, spots, it's it's been, honestly, it's been a blessing and we feel really lucky to have the success we've had. Amazing, and you started really in, in 2012. What sort of, uh, you know, you're, you're coming up to a nice milestone that we touched on, on it off air, <laughs> uh, which is 100 million dirhams of revenue, uh, which is yeah. incredible really, and it's kind of a nice kind of success story uh, of a creative digital agency in Dubai and also but you know you're based in Al-Sarkal and it's very kind of a community uh, story as well how, how much of kind of being in a, an artsy area adds to the kind of creative output in the field of the agency so look I think we didn't want to do things I, I when I visited some of the other free zones in 2011 and then when we started in 2012 I didn't want to do things just because um, and I felt a phenomenal connection with the way that the um, Abu Dhabi brands and institutions were trying to grow and their ambition and the stories they wanted to tell. And the way they organized their business was very similar to how my mind thought and the way I recruited the types of people I recruited. And so we actually incorporated first in 2454 in Abu Dhabi in 2012. And um, they gave me, you know, a few months of free rent and they would pick up the phone and call people in procurement and they would do other things to really help us mm. get um, ingratiated with uh, the Abu Dhabi brand. So that was very helpful. Um, and then from there, we would work a lot of days. We worked out of make in Dubai. A lot of the team members were based in Dubai. Uh, so we were going back and forth almost every day and we'd work out of make. So that, that was our kind of that was make business hub in the marina for people who don't remember yeah. it. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I think we met there. Um, and uh, it was founded by Leif Matthews, a really dynamic entrepreneur in the region. And, uh, and so that was really fundamental to like, okay, I moved from New York. Um, previously, I'd been in LA almost seven years. I did not want to jump into a hyper corporate environment. I wanted something that really connected with me, um, you know, who I was, the culture I, I wanted uh, to create, the people I wanted to work with. And so when we connected with um, Alistair Cal and uh, we worked on a, a really interesting campaign around the Coos Arts Fest, um, we were like, this is our home. We have, to, we have to get an office here and we have to grow from here. Um, outside of that, I really think it was about um, trying to find the right way to recruit, retain, and grow uh, really bright and energetic people. Um, I, I can't take a lot of the credit. Um, I created the right environment and I really, I took risk. Uh, but outside of that, our team, um, the people who have come through our doors over the last uh, now eight years, uh, this June, um, they're really the reason we were able to hit this revenue milestone. I don't like vanity metrics, uh, but it is a nice round number. It feels good. Um, and considering that you know, we've never taken VC, we've never taken outside funding. It feels like, um, yeah, something pretty important. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's also, uh, you know, uh, it's incredible really how much digital has changed in those eight years. And to, you know, I, you know, if you looked into the detail of that 100 million dirhams, I'm sure there's so many different skill sets, platforms, technologies, ideas, you know, digital is complex, Will, right? Like it, for people who aren't in advertising, um, you know, getting into advertising and knowing how the industry works is one part, but knowing the yep. nuances of, of digital advertising is, is really uh, complicated. Yeah, I think one of the things that served us well is we try not to have a, a set opinion. You know, uh, one of, uh, one of our, our first strategists uh, and then lead strategists who actually built a really cool ad targeting uh, unit for Facebook um, when we had Etihad, we created expat targeting. Um, and then he ended up going to work for Facebook. He's still there. He's in uh, um, their headquarters in California. Um, he would always say strong opinions loosely held. And so, you know, prove it, show us. Um, so there would be times where we'd go into a meeting uh, with other agencies or with a client. And we'd say, these are our opinions. This is what we believe in. Here's why we need to shift spin here, here, and here. Mm. And if we couldn't back it up, we'd say we were wrong or vice versa. We'd say, yep, six months ago, we thought you needed to shift spin into Facebook, but now we think it's Instagram and now we think it's YouTube and now we think it's Snapchat. Mm. So I think not having a hard and fast this is the way it is, this is the way it's always got to be, saved us. I think on the other side, the economic, the unit economics on how we built our business, we weren't dependent on um, a media rebate. We weren't dependent on so many other people having their business models protected um, in order for us to be profitable. We had to do good work. We had to make our clients happy. And then we had to have incremental growth within our contracts, within our revenue, and then obviously within their businesses. Um, and so to go back uh, to, the, to the pivot question, I think that's also why we ended up focusing on healthcare, focusing on B2B, focusing on government, mm. is because that was a very achievable thing to prove in digital and social. Mm. Um, if you're in uh, FMCG and you're, you're talking about how do I get people to buy a chocolate bar, the person who's buying that space on the shelf at a Carrefour is always going to take more credit for, for that purchase than you're going to be able to take, unless you have a viral video or a campaign that goes big. So for us, there was a very clear way for us to say, we did this, this happened, this is what we can take credit for. 
And that creates a really positive, really symbiotic feedback loop with clients in those industries. That's fascinating when you put it into context with people trying to do attribution around uh, e-commerce and performance. And you're totally right. It's, it's very hard to, uh, to, you know, as an agency or as a service provider that's marketing to tell uh, whether it's a multinational or whether it's a restaurant that you drove these customers here, uh, even if you can track it, you know, they're the ones preparing the foods, they're the ones who created the concept and all that sort right. of uh, aspect. But, you know, um, just touching on the point you mentioned about roster agencies and different services, um, because being a full service creative digital agency, there's, there's so many aspects in that, involved in that. There's the concept there's the platforms, yep. there's media buying, there's creation, there's actual web development of which you all, you sure. do in-house. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, how do you kind of, how do you navigate that in terms of communication with your clients? Yeah, so I think, and, and to, be, to be clear, it really depends on the digital uh, project. We do have uh, development partners we use for, uh, I would actually say the majority of digital we do now from a building perspective is out of house. We will design, we will conceptualize, we will strategize. Um, and then we do some in-house as well, um, just to be clear. Hmm. I think for us, the idea and the brief is really what drives everything else. So if we have a very structured brief from the client, we really understand their audiences, we really understand their goals, and um, we feel like we've got a, a fulcrum that we can kind of lift and, and, and achieve the outcome, the right incentive, for instance. Um, I got to tell you, for a lot of the healthcare clients, it's been very, very hard for them to go with more information about COVID-19 to their audiences um, and try to set themselves apart. So we've had to spin that on its head a lot and say, well, what makes your institution unique? What is the value out of your institution in this Emirates uh, defense of COVID-19 or response to COVID-19? What is the thing that sets you apart uh, regionally or internationally about how you're responding to this? And then try to build something that's really unique, really bespoke for them. Um, and that's, that's come with mixed results. I think a lot of times um, you have to have tremendous buy-in from the client side where they kind of raise their hand and they're like, we get that you're the right person to solve this. Um, and that can be very political. Um, and even going back to attribution, you know, this starts in-house as well. You have to have tremendous buy-in from the client side to say, okay, we're willing to be objective about our blind spots too. We're willing to be objective about you know, how we uh, model or how we pass a lead off internally or how we attribute, attribute things internally as well. So I think it really does start with the brief. It starts with, you know, what are we trying to solve? Um, and then from there, it's about timing. It's about having the right people together. And really the best idea today is the one that you can get launched. Um, if you're sitting on good ideas and good creative for a better time in the future, unless it's something that is tone deaf and doesn't make sense within the pandemic, I think you should be communicating with your audiences. Um, I think you should be there um, talking about what you're capable of. I don't think you can just flick a switch off and, and go away. Uh, yeah, I love it. I think, um, you know, the the concept and the creative idea is uh, at, at its essence, the core of marketing services, especially in the creative industry. Um, however, often uh, more emphasis is put on execution and trends uh, evolve yep. from that. We've seen in the time you've been here, we've seen social media specific agencies grow. We've seen influencer marketing agencies grow really fast. Uh, do, you, yep. do you think that there's enough value put on the core marketing idea or do you think um, more is, uh, you know, 
why these uh, trends are allowed to grow is because it's more about the execution and what people can see. Yeah, I think your I think your thesis is completely correct. Um, that clients and customers in the Gulf value execution because they can see it. It's something that they say, here's what we know we can do in-house. If you can do this cheaper than we can do it in-house, CapEx, OpEx, we're gonna go with you. And then you have to do it at scale more efficiently with lower cost base, et cetera, in order to make that margin that they can't do in-house. Mm. So I think that's fundamentally, it's easy for procurement to understand, for decision makers to understand. But I think if you go one step further and you look at how big companies and just in general companies in the Gulf have purchased professional services, they don't take a step back and say, who's the best person to solve this? They go, who can solve this? And if it backfires, I don't get in trouble. Hmm. That is when the management consultants come into the mix. That is when the big agencies come into the mix and your SMEs and your boutique agencies kind of get pushed aside because they we're seeing more as um, sometimes, and especially in times of crisis as, as a risk. So I think we have to kind of fight up that value chain to get access to C-level executives, to get buy-in from C-level executives, to say like, hey, a McKinsey or, or an Accenture handling your social media strategy. I have one client that has a big four company um, that is literally only known for auditing and they're doing the marketing plan for them. Mm. And that's, that's for me, like I would have done that for free, right? I would have done that to get a seat at the table uh, off the back of all the other contracts I have with them. And so that's really uh, disheartening. And I think that, you know, you wouldn't see that as much in in the West. I don't think there's buying brands and buying labels as much in the West. You'll, you'll routinely see, and you can see it actually, uh, Google forever worked with uh, Essence before they were bought by yeah. WPP, right? Yeah. Uh, Amazon worked with them. Um, you know, Facebook works with boutique agencies all the time. Uh, uh, you know, so I think there is a, if you, if you know and you have your blind spots figured out, you can see real value in the SMEs and the boutique uh, professional services folks way, way, way beyond what the, 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 the management consulting firms can do and the global partners can do. I think, you know, what, what you mentioned about seeing things and valuing that uh, resonates with me. But however, it does take courage even to try it, even if you don't want the blame. It takes courage to kind of see something and wanting to do something innovative. And I think a lot of companies, especially uh, in the last decade in, in, in the UAE, have been very good at that. Just touching on kind of WPP and the global uh, yeah. outlook uh, for this model, um, of which you're an independent uh, company yep. in, in that wider ecosystem. What's your view on where we are, the status quo for advertising? <laughs> well, look, I think, you know, the prevailing trend for, depending on the business, 10, 15, you can even, you know, for WPP, go back maybe 20 years, um, has been to value these businesses off of their media and uh, off of their top line run rate. Um, I think that's insane. Um, they, they don't have a lock on their, uh, their customers or customers, um, you know, can't exit a lot of these agreements. The switching cost is pretty low relative to the value that they add to their, their bottom line and to their uh, market capitalization. Um, so can you, I think can that you just is, explain that a bit more, just the customer part about being locked. So. If you are a big holding company and you've got a large automotive client in the Gulf that is spending with you, let's say, you know, 30 million dirhams a year, um, in theory, you would 
derive your value as a business in the stock market off that 30 million number. Not your profit, not your loss, not your gross profit or your net profit. And that was the prevailing idea for a very long time. And you know, they would tell the stock market, it's really difficult for this automotive company to leave us. It's really difficult for them to do things in house. And the reality is over that, that time span, two things have happened. One, investors have started to see that you know, it's a bit of a fallacy to think your top line revenue equals your profit or your value. Um, and the other thing is, I think investors have seen that that client, it's a lot easier for them to walk out the door than not. Um, and in parallel to that, the big holding companies, um, and there's a really famous quote from uh, Sir Martin where he says, hey, our biggest value, our biggest you know, differentiators are people. And they, they go out the office and down the elevator and out the door every night, and I have to get them back in here. I have to get them to work for us and not Facebook and not Google and you know not twitter and a lot of these other dynamic platforms that have stock options and hmm. you know uh, a sushi counter in the office and everything else so i think that when you when you juxtapose those two things um i think the franchise value their ability to extract value out of their, their professional services and their clients diminishes i think in parallel to that you also have the rise of the duopoly when the majority of money being spent by brands is coming from facebook and google and their associated brands, um, it makes it way harder for them to be able to get uh, rebates, for them to be able to have negotiating power, franchise power, all these different things that they could do when they had a thousand publishers around the world, or you know, two thousand uh, print houses, or um, you know, five hundred TV stations, right? So then there was a, the ability for them to middleman and to, to to take a piece of that. As that slowly diminishes and the values of those associated medias decline, I think their businesses get harder and harder to justify at scale. Um, so I think you will see the management consulting firms come in and, and, and pick off certain brands, pick off certain expertises. I think you will see some of these uh, holding companies maybe even delist. Mm. Um, I, I don't want to say any names, but there was a, a really great creative agency uh, based out of UK and Europe. Um, and, you know, I watched their enterprise value go down like 85% in the last six months. Hmm. Um, and that's heartbreaking. This is an agency I looked up to growing up. So yeah. it's it's really tough times for them. I, it's interesting. So delisting can become private and it can uh, be a turnaround story and it can, it can be a positive. Do you think there's a greater problem outside? You're an independent agency, but the majority of marketing services are uh, are owned by holding groups, whether it's uh, publicists or WPP or other holding groups, IPG and others, and they're all listed as you mentioned. But they're uh, they they've announced cutbacks uh, this week regarding staff and salaries, reflecting COVID nineteen and the advertising outlook for the year. We've seen Olympics postponed. We've seen the the Euros. Uh, European Championships postponed as well. However, question is, uh, are they, is there, an, a lot of them ha, um, are in debt, they're in, heavily in debt. Is the model broken? Are we going to see, uh, are we going to see a different structure, whether it's uh, consultancy companies, but are we going to see a different model for the future around marketing services? So uh, I think there's two sides to this. I think one, it's not that the consultancies don't have debt. I'm sure they have debt as well. I just think the, the fundamentals around their business and the way they structure and the unit economics around their business are more aligned with uh, growth and the dynamic nature of these purchases than the holding companies are. Um, they're not as 
they don't have as many blind spots to you know the duopoly emerging as WPP or any of the other folks uh, might have had over the last few years. Which, by the way, I think WPP under their new um, CEOs made some really really smart moves, and they've really consolidated the business a lot. And um, I think Reed has really focused them on on digital and some some businesses where they can compete in a big way. So I'm not negative on the businesses at all. I'm just saying I think they have tremendous pressure. In terms of like marketing services going forward, I think that the odds of the majority of companies buying the things that they used to buy is declining every quarter. So I don't see FMCG buying out of home or buying TV or radio the way they used to. I just, I don't see that being when they wake up in the morning, they think I have to have, you know, this billboard on Shakeside Road. It, those days have, have slowly, slowly changed. Uh, and you see this, it, you've seen it for a long time throughout uh, the US and Europe. That doesn't mean that out of home isn't valued. I think digital out of home, dynamic, programmatic out of home will be uh, much, much more valued and preferred. So you can spin it up or spin it down depending on um, a lot of other things that are happening for the brand uh, below the line and online. I just think they don't wanna be stuck there with a huge investment. I think they wanna be more dynamic. I think on the other side, the way big brands buy marketing services is going to change as well. You know, it was a huge deal when one of the big FMCGs uh, brought in a head of digital from their corporate in Switzerland here. And like, everybody's like, oh, he's from corporate. Oh, he was trained for a year in digital. Well, now everybody in that business that I meet, they're strong in digital, mm -hmm. right? Everybody that I meet in the big uh, beverage companies, they're strong in digital, mm -hmm. right? I think the next phase for a lot of these FMCG brands, for instance, is going to be e-commerce. I think the next phase for a lot of these B2B brands and governments is to move into more of a newsroom style and to kind of be more dynamic in how they publish, how they originate stories, and how they tell stories. Mm. So I think that's kind of the two outputs, and that's going to require the clients to be way stronger uh, from a capabilities perspective, way stronger from a project management perspective, way stronger from a... Uh, a voice and a tone and a messaging perspective. Interesting. So I, I, to summarize and not to summarize to, uh, <laughs> not, not to dilute anything what you've just said, but I, I get the sense that as digital advances and becomes uh, more, more nuanced in terms of content skill set and uh, media buying and programmatic skill set, there will always be a need uh, for the, the likes of uh, LMTD and different services agencies? I definitely think so. I just think it's going to depend on how they integrate with the client. Mm. That is for us, and that's why we picked the clients we did, because the the protocols, the way that they like to work, the flexibility that they want to see from an agency, we're comfortable with. And on the other side, the ambition that they have, the way they want to grow, the way they value professional services, we, we appreciate, right? Mm. So it's a real win. So before we talk about a lot of the things you do outside of uh, your day job per se, um, I know I know the topic of SMEs and funding is is close to your heart uh, and something you're passionate about because we've discussed it at length before. Can can you talk yeah. about you know the 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 journey that you've had as an SME as a startup and an SME as a small uh, medium sized sure. company uh, here? And uh, what do you think the support system is uh, for companies like yours? So I obviously, when I started the business, I didn't know how daunting it was to do what I was doing. I, I was just naive to everything. I moved here when I was 31. I just turned 40 uh, last month. Happy birthday. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. The journey has been 
completely eye-opening. And um, you know, the question that people ask me a lot is, if you were to get the same opportunity today, would you do what you did then? And the short answer is absolutely not. Um, I'm very happy with where I am and, and the business we have and the team we have and the structure we have. But I think the risk reward for the type of business I built in those first few years justifies where we are today. I don't think I could do that again today. And let me explain. I think um, then I had the ability to, in essence, not get paid for years, not take a partner um, ever, and to really just kind of crash with a bunch of friends in an apartment, uh, also coworkers a lot of times, and um, just kind of scrape by month over month. I mean, there were times where we were very month to month, uh, sometimes for years, and there was there was really no. I just I didn't know of any other way. I hadn't really researched, you know, what does it look like to start an agency from scratch, uh, you know, in the U.S. or Europe or these other places. And over time, I started to realize that oh, it's not normal for the vast majority of my profit every year to be out in the market with my clients. It's not normal for a, 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 an invoice that I, that's net 30 term for days to be paid in 90 days. I, I just thought this was what we did. And so, you know, for me, the two big revelations have been working with a peer to peer um, lending platform uh, called Beehive, hmm. um, which has really helped us many times. Um, and it, obviously it has limitations as well. Um, they have to manage their risk. Um, and then the other side of it has been really trying to openly engage. And, you know, my experience as a mentor with startups and SMEs over the past eight years has been, you know, not just uh, focused on the UAE. I've, I've traveled probably 30, 35 times around the region working with Wanda and Mix and Mentor and a lot of their events. And the message is the same thing. Um, we have a profitable comp a company. We want to grow. Um, but we're not going to be able to expand. They can't sell receivables. So receivables financing, that means money that I am owed from my client, I can go sell to a bank at 95, 98, 99 cents on the dollar. That doesn't exist uh, for the vast majority of folks in the region. They don't have the ability to have decent term debt. Uh, debt from a bank generally is 17, 18%. Um, Beehive, you're going to look at anywhere from nine to 13%. Um, still way, way higher. And, and by the way, term debt with a bank is going to be three, four years, uh, sometimes five, and Beehive is going to be at most two years. So if I want to acquire a competitor, if I want to expand into a new market off the back of a receivable or an actual client, I can't do that. Hmm. And so then I have to go into the existing groups that invest in, uh, in startups and things like that, and I'm a services company, hmm. right? I'm not as desirable as the next Kareem or the next Soup. So that really has put a lot of great fantastic, profitable SMEs in this blind spot for the market. And so for me, especially now with everything going on with the pandemic, my real mission is, you know, how can we find ways to get SMEs funded? And I think the short answer is we need to create a debt market. We need to help de-risk the banks. That does not mean we give money away for free. That does not mean we become the lender of last resort or the government does. But we do need to find an in-between where real businesses that make money have access to real term debt that allows them to grow and expand. Wow, very well explained. Thank you. I think I, I, under <laughs> I understood about 70% of it, hopefully. Um, but when you say, I want to touch on a few of those things, but just the last bit, when you say we, uh, who are you referring to? Right now, it's just other volunteers. This mm. is not anything remotely formal. Mm. Um, I'd love to build a business around the debt market, that's powered by tech, that uses a lot of the great um, 
things that the free zones uh, like ADGM and DIFC are toying with in their sandboxes. Um, but right now, it's just a bunch of volunteers that are reaching out to the regulators, they're reaching out to the banks, mm. and they're saying, got to help the SMEs. The SMEs need your help. So a debt market is uh, can be crowdfunding, or it can be something that's backed by regular debt that's backed by collateral? It's literally as simple as this. When banks lend money today in the Gulf, they are taking usually 100% or 98% of that risk. The rest mm. is a bit of a spread for the central bank. Mm. In a lot of other markets in the world, they do not take that risk. So in Europe, France, for instance, banks are taking at most 5 or 10% of that risk. Mm. They will sell off. They'll syndicate the rest of that debt to other buyers of debt, sometimes the European Central Bank. Sometimes it's going to be insurance companies. Mm. Um, sometimes it's going to be large sovereign funds. Sometimes it's going to be uh, you know, IMF. I don't know. But other people will buy off that risk. We need a market that allows the bank to take less risk. I, I am, I am, I'm not sympathetic. A lot of our banks have been, uh, you know, on the historically very profitable. Mm. But I am empathetic. I understand the position they're in. I understand that it's insane to take that much risk without a really good uh, interest rate. I get it. Yeah, interesting. So I didn't understand that it was such a unique issue for here. I assumed that it was everywhere around the world. But, you know, I, I, we talk about there's, um, there's a Hamad bin Rashid Innovation Fund. Uh, yep. And that the interest is, you know, um, a third of what you mentioned from regular bank, but it's backed by member banks. So it's, it's that sort of collaboration. It's the type of debt that, that you're talking about. Uh, so it's good to see that there, there's some types of opportunities um, there. Uh, and it's great that, you know, I guess you're a champion for, uh, for further opportunities because you're not on your own and it's not, um, it's not <laughs> isolated. It's not siloed in marketing services. You know, uh, there's different terminologies for SME, but there's, uh, especially yeah. at the moment, we're seeing a lot of kind of small businesses and local businesses that would, that maybe mightn't even understand to the detail that you do of this challenge. Uh, so it's great to hear it. Uh, well, I mean, for me, I just, I fundamentally believe in the power of entrepreneurship to change the world, fundamentally. Mm. Um, and so that has led me on a really interesting adventure here. It's opened my eyes to the challenges of emerging markets, which to your point, uh, debt markets are a huge blind spot for emerging markets. Um, and it's actually, if I'm able to be frank, it's really floored me with the vision and the leadership that the UAE and actually a lot of the GCC countries have had trying to reinvest in their youth, trying to build uh, more of a social safety net and trying to build real uh, diversified economies away from oil, um, which is, I think, why this is so important to talk about now. This is an existential uh, issue. If the borders open and, and, and entrepreneurs leave, so much of the soul, so much of the efficient mm. job creation leaves with them. And we need to send a clear message to all other entrepreneurs. You know, the UAE is open for business. The UAE uh, is here to support uh, entrepreneurs and founders. And the UAE believes in small business. Um, and I think they're doing that. I think they're doing a good job there. Um, and I just want to make sure that that message gets across loud and clear. Because it's, it's fascinating when you think of it. You know, we, we often talk, think of startups and entrepreneurs uh, in terms of investments uh, and, you know, seeds, angel, uh, ventured, private types of investments. 
Um, but the challenges that you're talking about are your own investments, your, your own profits, work that you've delivered, being able to put Literally. back back into your business, whether it's to develop that new uh, technical uh, service to improve efficiencies, whether it's to move into another market, um, as well as Abu Dhabi and Dubai that you're in, and then also to reinvest Correct. in your staff. Uh, so it, it's fascinating when to look at it from that point of view. Um, yeah. We, by the way. You look at it from a market. That's sorry to interrupt. That venture side of it is it's it's low double digits. The vast majority of the issue is with the SMEs. Now the venture side creates a powerful narrative. The venture side creates outsized returns. The venture side is fundamentally important and needs to be uh, focused on and, and nurtured and cultivated. Mm. But the SME side can't be left to languish. And it would be one thing if I was saying. You know, we need to have huge debt to income ratios or, or, or some some wild multiples on the back of services companies or trading companies. I don't want that. But I do want funds available if I want to buy my competitor out or mm. if my competitor and I want to merge mm. or if I want to do a management buyout. Mm. You know, my team, I, I love my executive team. You know, I'm I'm passionate about SME debt. I'd love to de-risk myself and go focus and volunteer around that and maybe some other charities mm. um, and spend the next decade of my life doing that instead of services. And I don't have an instrument. I don't have a bank that would come in and do a management buyout for me. Mm. And again, I get why the banks won't do that. I don't think they're a villain, but I think there are structural reforms that we can do to make sure the banks have what they need to be able to make that loan and still do it safely. Um, and I think if we do that, the GCC flourishes, right? Mm. It flourishes. That's amazing. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's very aligned with our view on Smashy. We say just a plug, but we say for the driven, the dreamers, and the doers. And <laughs> and but but it's it's amazing because I didn't know it was so aligned with the kind of mentorship and and what you do in terms of um, believing in this region, the Gulf and the wider region, in terms of the opportunities um, and not just in startup, but just the wider kind of uh, spirit of people wanting to work. Um, and you're talking about money that's on your balance sheet. You know, you're not talking yeah. about access that doesn't exist. In terms of valuations, uh, and this might be a bit beyond me, but in terms of, uh, you know, limited understanding, if I'm getting a mortgage out, I can get lower interest because there's uh, a property against yeah. it. If I'm getting a business it. loan out, there's nothing backing it, one side of what you're talking about, and it might be five times more higher interest. But how could we value businesses and how can we value IP and how can we value talent um, to act as collateral? Is that a possibility? It is. And I think the fundamental driver around anything like valuation, Richard, is threefold. It's access to capital, it's demand, and it's supply. <laughs> That's it. That's what drives valuation. If tomorrow everybody wanted to operate coin machine laundromats, mm. <laughs> right? And there's those have been out of out of favor for decades, but there's only 20 in Dubai. The value would go up because everybody wants to buy them. Mm. If if uh, inflation took hold and money got cheaper, right? Like we're pegged to the dollar in the UAE, and we have more money than we did previously, and the euro is dropping, we can go into Europe and we can buy cheaper than we can build here, right? That's access to capital, demand, and then supply. And that's it. So I think we need to very carefully create just enough demand to, and this is a, this is a time where people are going to be more reasonable with their expectations of exits, more reasonable. I'm, I'm telling every SME 
I'm, and I'm, by the way, I'm also eating, uh, you know, my own, <laughs> my own advice. I'm taking my own medicine. Reach out to your competitors. Reach out to the people that you wouldn't normally talk to if it's a competitor or a tertiary uh, trade partner and say, hey, how are we going to get through this together? You know, is there a way that we can work together? Or we don't even have to talk business. Let's just have each other's back. Let's start there. I'm going through something that you're going through. Mm. I understand a way that you, that no one else can probably understand it in your life. Let's find a way to work together. And um, I've done that. I've talked to a few of our competitors. I've talked to a few of our tertiary kind of trade partners. They do similar services, kind of more complimentary. I think coming out of this, you should see consolidation. You should see roll-ups. There will be demand there. There will be need there. It's just a matter of will we have the access to liquidity? Will we have the access to capital to do that? Will, what does, what does mentorship, what is the mentor? Wow. Um, I think a mentor is someone that can come into the life of a person at a time when they're ready to um, get advice. Not that they need advice, but when they're ready to receive and get advice, I think that is a, a key. And they have the right message and the right perspective um, to be able to do that and not take credit for it, not want credit for it. They're just the right person at the right time to come there to uplift them and say, you got this. And that could be accountability. That could say, hey, you're, you're blind to all these things. You got to treat your employees better. It could be um, accountability in the other direction. You've got to look out for yourself. You're not taking care of yourself. You're throwing yourself in this business. Take better care of yourself. Be objective. Separate yourself from the business. Mm. Uh, it could be, you know, you're going through an exit. I've gone through a couple different, uh, you know, potential sales. And what I've learned by not selling I've then turned around and helped many other businesses that went on to sell or went on to raise mm. um, and how they structure that, what the terms look like, um, who to hire, uh, you know, in order to walk through that sort of process. So it could be much more tactical. Um, yeah, mentors can be a lot of things. So part consultancy, part advice, part giving back. How do you structure it? How do, you know, it's clearly something that you're consistent at uh, that yeah. aligns with what your what your views are overall and kind of business and values. Uh, but how do you structure? Do you allot a certain amount of time? Do you charge for it? Do you, um, how do you structure it? So the short answer is uh, no, I don't charge for it. Um, I've been offered equity, which generally I pass on equity because I think I wouldn't be a good mentor if my interests aren't aligned and I wouldn't be able to be objective. Um, but over the last year, I have looked at a couple equity opportunities. I haven't moved on anything. Um, but no, I definitely, it's not a commercial enterprise. Um, it's very ad hoc for me. I don't set time aside. It's not my priority. My priority, generally speaking, is my business and my family. Mm. Not necessarily in that order. Uh, really depends on how things are going. And um, yeah, it's very ad hoc. So it could be late night texts. It could be, um, you know, I fly, uh, you know, or I used to fly in the region and visit mentors for a couple of days at a time, spend time in their offices, get to know them and their family um, and, and better understand the entrepreneur, the founder, and what they're going through and really try to have an impact on their business. Honestly, it comes from what I didn't have when I was starting my business and I wish I had. Mm. And so I, I derive a tremendous amount of peace and a tremendous amount of, you know, yeah, it's just, it's very fulfilling mm. uh, to be able to give back and to see that impact and to be there for them. Um, I had a founder message me yesterday with their 2019 closed books 
and it was profitable. And Amazing. he literally was like, yeah, he was <laughs> like, I would not have been able to do this without you. You deserve an insane amount of credit. Yeah. Um, and he actually, at the end of it said, Hey, do you want to join? And I was like, Oh, let's see. Let's see. <laughs> I'm really happy running my business right now. I love my team. I love my clients. Let's see. Uh, so yeah, it's, really rewarding we've talked a lot about what you've achieved here in in almost a decade but you had you grew up in in florida you spent a lot of time in new york you had you had a career in the u.s before you came here and i'm sure that that's value that you're giving back as well what what what's it like uh having a career in new york and advertising uh what did you learn from there and and you know without kind of condensing too much into a short space of time, but what's your view on the U.S. economy at the moment? Okay. (laughs) But the more time I spend out of the U.S., the more respect I have for what the U.S. represents as an economy. It's the most diversified, robust, um, properly incentivized economy in the world. I mean, what the U.S. and what uh, America has done is to create this perfect mousetrap for investors around the world to, to put money into, to have real courts, to have real IP protection, to have real risk takers, there's real bankruptcy laws, for instance, um, to be able to create this great economic marvel. Um, it's got a lot of blind spots. It's got a lot of areas, needs improvement, right? A lot of areas for improvement, but it is super resilient. And so I'm, you know, overall I'm bullish on it. Um, I do think, you know, you look at equities, you look at some of these other things, it would have been interesting to see a bit of a reset in terms of values, but I don't think we're going to get that uh, based on this market bounce. Maybe there's another, maybe if we get a double dip in the pandemic, um, investors really say, okay, this is going to be prolonged. So let's see. I mean, for me, what, what, you know, my time in Los Angeles and what my time in New York gave me was really a tremendous um, fire in my gut. I just really wanted to build something lasting i really wanted to build a work environment and to do excellent good work uh for clients and um and to really build a a business and a culture that i could be proud of that the type of culture i would have wanted to work in when i was starting um and then more importantly i think and, and this is definitely new york i think it was just wild at the amount of competition and how quickly and efficiently the market would compete within itself to get the right fit of services, the right fit of offering, the right pricing, everything. It was just, it was really, really, really spectacular how fast the market moved there. Um, It took me a year or two to kind of reset to the region where it's um, a a lot more of a, uh, not casual, but a lot more of a measured pace in the region. And we're, we're so impacted by the microeconomic events. We're impacted by regional prices on oil. We're impacted by does Emirates and, and Etihad open new routes or not? Does that bring in more trade flow? How is tourism doing? What's the Durham to the ruble? What's the Durham to the yuan? What's the Durham to the euro? Hmm. That was all new to me. So I think, you know, there's two sides to that coin that I had to get used to, but I feel very thankful for the experience. Amazing. I, yeah. Uh, you, great to hear. But so I think there's fascinating comparisons and it's always good to get someone's perspective of, uh, where they come from, both culturally, but also uh, economically and from a business comparison. Uh, but you seem to not only compare the Gulf with the US, you also look at, uh, and I know you've done business in Asia as well, you, you look at the kind of global uh, economy. Yeah, I think that has been the biggest 
other than getting to see the growth and building lifelong friendships with my colleagues and my employees um, and seeing just how their lives progress. Um, outside of that, seeing how global economies work and how they interlock and what makes them unique and valuable. And you know uh, the way that trade with Asia works from the Gulf, the way that trade with Asia works from the US or you know, to have a front row seat, I was negotiating um, one of our larger clients a couple of years back was a Korean uh, company, uh, a subsidiary of Hyundai. And we worked with them for a couple of years and brought them to the region. And to do that in the middle of like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was being negotiated and it fell mm. apart, that was really interesting to have a front row seat on how that worked. And there's just a big part of me as an entrepreneur and just a, a curious person that got to see that, how it worked. I loved it. Right. And you, you work, bringing back to where we are now, you're working from home and you mentioned, you know, that you, <laughs> that you put work alongside your family. Uh, family is obviously, you know, and I know you personally, that family is a very important part of your life. And it's led a lot of the external externality, external um, initiatives that you're involved in. Can you talk a bit about yep. that and the charity work that you do? Yeah. So I'm, you know, really lucky. Uh, I know people have moved to Dubai and uh, been unlucky in love. I heard it's a hard place to date, but I <laughs> met my wife here. And you, you were with me the night I met my wife. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, you ran the 10K, I ran the 5K <laughs> at the Nike run. Ah, uh, this is the uh, one at Atlantis. What year was yeah, that? 2012. Oh, so wow. My, yeah. first year, my wife, it was her first week. And uh, yeah, I got really lucky, just, you know, kind of a love at first sight type of thing. And we've, um, you know, since gotten married and kind of built a life here. Yeah. And we have two amazing daughters. One is four and one is uh, one and a half. And um, our oldest daughter uh, has profound genetic epilepsy. So from birth was having sometimes 60, 70 seizures a day. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, you feel like I'm good with ambiguity. I'm good with managing dynamic situations. And then to have such a jarring, profound event happen right in front of you to this, this being that you care for so much that you have, I've dreamed about, you know, our kids as a, since I was a teen, since I could think about getting married and having a family, I've dreamed about these children. And so to have her fighting for her life, and to this day, she still fights for her life um, with this condition, um, it totally reframed everything for me. It totally reframed how I prioritize my life and, and business. And there were definite sacrifices. I'm sure if you were to candidly ask some of my uh, colleagues, like, did I make work a priority for a few years? They'd be like, no, he was taking care of a child that, that, that could die at any minute. And mm. we almost lost her many times. So um, I really put, uh, you know, her condition on, on, a, on a forefront for me, uh, or on a pedestal rather, and, and I've tried to raise awareness for that. It's a genetic epilepsy called SCN2A, which is a mutation in the sodium channel um, that causes severe epilepsy um, to this day. Um, there is not a real outcome. It's not a great outcome. A lot of our, uh, a lot of our children die. I say children because they don't live. The, the comorbidities don't always allow them to live into their teens or early adulthood. Um, but we've, I'm part of the, I'm on the board of directors for the global foundation. Um, we are very active. It's called families SCN2A. If you want to look us up, um, we're very active in, uh, the greater sodium channel space. And we try to work with all the other foundations and, um, we're really encouraged. Uh, so I joined the board. It'll be, I want to say three years this summer. Uh, and 
we had no drugs in the pipeline, no real opportunities, and now we've got drugs that are being developed just for our kids. So mm -hmm. I think we could see cures in the next uh, in the next year or two, uh, or at least really big therapies for our kids. And and through that, my wife and I have gotten really involved in the regional uh, rare disease community. So uh, my wife Jamie organizes Rare Disease Day um, with a couple other moms um, through a therapy center called High Hopes Dubai. We'd love for you to. Uh, support High Hopes. It recently got a not-for-profit status um, through um, Dubai uh, Municipality and Health Authority, and I joined the board there. And then uh, in the last year, um, I joined the Parents Board of Advisors for Al Jalila Hospital as well, um, which is the only pediatric hospital in the region. Um, and they've really made working with chronically ill and sick kids a priority. They've done incredible work there. We're very thankful for both Al Jalila and High Hopes for opening um, you know, their lives up to us and to taking us in with open arms and protecting our, our oldest child. Incredible story. Um, thank you. And, you know, a shout out to Jamie as well for, for being so involved in, 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 in what you've shared with us uh, now and over the last hour. Thanks, Will. Thanks for coming on Dubai Works. Uh, it's amazing to see uh, how much value you've, you've given to Dubai over the last eight years and continue to do so. And um, Thanks, yeah, and good luck coming out of the, the current situation. Uh, Thanks. Thanks, Will. Uh, speak soon. Bye, buddy. Hey, guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy.